It's good to see y'all. I'm Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, most of you know me. I think I know just about everybody. Uh, we'll be talking about Mark chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Mark uh, chapter 8. We'll be continuing there. And as you're uh, opening up to Mark chapter 8, let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come before you as people that recognize that we don't know everything. And we likely will never know everything. But we know that you are gracious and good and you reveal yourself to us more and more through your word. And that your spirit speaks to us. And God, we pray that as we read your word today, that your spirit would do that. That we would learn a little bit more about who your son Jesus is. What it means to follow him as a disciple. What exactly is his mission? And how do we become involved in that? How do we stay involved in that? What does fruitfulness look like? All of these things. God, I ask that your spirit would speak to us. That's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, um, like I said, we'll be in Mark chapter 8, so please open your Bibles there. And as I was preparing um, for this sermon, I, I continued to come back to this idea that stagnant water just is so bad. It's so bad. And I'll explain why I keep coming back to that. Because water is meant to be something that's, uh, that quenches thirst, right? It, it gives life. It, it uh, restores. It cleanses. There's a lot of good things about water. But stagnant water, right? When I think of stagnant water, I mostly think about the mosquitoes. When the, st when the water starts to stand in the backyard or you're living by a bunch of standing water, you know there's bound to be mosquitoes, especially at some point of the year, right? So I'm already thinking about insects. Uh, and potentially, you know, insects that maybe carry diseases and, and make, uh, you know, spread, uh, spread problems, right? Um, stagnant water begins to attract rodents, right? But it carries within it a lot of issues. Bacteria. Bacteria begins to grow like crazy. Uh, in, in clean water, mold grows at about potentially 72 hours. But if it's stagnant, mold can grow inside of 24 hours. Inside of 24 hours. That's, that's crazy. Now, I, I did read a lot about stagnant water this week. And some of you guys are like, oh, man, this is already kind of boring. <laughs> well, that's OK. That's OK. Sometimes you got to start at a boring place to get to where you want to go. My point is this, being still and stagnation can be bad. It can be bad. And it's especially true for our spiritual lives. We are not meant to be stagnant believers. We are not meant to reach a certain level in our faith, and then that's it, and we stop. That's not what we're meant to do. Believers are meant to continue to grow in faith and understanding. And here's the amazing thing. God is infinite, which means as we continue to grow in faith and understanding, there's always something more to grow into. There's always something more to learn. You know, uh, part of the process of being a believer, part of the process of sanctification is 
conforming more and more into the image of Christ. And I got news for you. You're never all the way conformed. There is always a work that God and the Holy Spirit is doing within you, within us, within me, to grow just a little bit more every day. Now, why do I bring this up for this passage? Well, what you're about to see is the disciples are put in these situations, right? And Steve did a great job uh, last week of recapping Mark from like a 30,000-foot view, giving you guys the big picture of what's going on in Mark. And, And he alluded to the fact that this passage that I'm about to preach on is a little bit of a transition passage, and it is. What you see are the the first act in Mark is about the disciples uh, learning who Jesus is, who Jesus is, and that's a very important question. We all need to answer the question as we follow Jesus, who are you? The second act of Mark, which we transition to just after this passage, begins to answer the question, well, what does it mean? Right? So we have who Jesus is, and then once we've kind of established that, what what exactly does that mean? And that's kind of where we're going with this. And in our spiritual lives, that shows growth. Because uh, we have an idea of who Jesus is when we come to him in faith. And then you're a Christian for a little while, and You develop that idea a little bit more, and then you're a Christian for a little while, and you develop that idea a little bit more, and by the grace of the Holy Spirit, you learn a little bit more along the way of what it means that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, what it means that he is the Son of God, what it means that he went to Calvary's cross to die for your sins and my sins. There's some basics to understanding those things that are foundational to our faith, but they have uh, implications that are so far-reaching that it, it takes a lifetime. In fact, it takes eternity to continue to learn about. So uh, that's where we're going today. Uh, Mark chapter 8, we're going to begin in verse 14. And as you, um, as you read along, you're going to see two main things. We're, there, there's kind of three sections that we're going to be looking at. The first thing that you're going to notice is that disciples need to watch out for influences that are harmful to their faith. Disciples need to watch out for influences that are harmful to their faith. The second thing that you're going to see is that spiritual sight may come gradually and with difficulty. Spiritual sight may come gradually and with difficulty. And when I say spiritual sight, I'm not talking about like, you know, the third eye and, oh, now I can see angels and, and demons and all of that kind of stuff. That, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about the understanding of spiritual things, right? Understanding God's word in a, in a, in a new way, right? Um, so uh, those are the two things that you guys are going to see, uh, hopefully, if I do my job. And, and, uh, and then we're going to discuss a little bit about what that means to us and what we can do with that. So... Um, First, let's go ahead and read uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 14. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. Okay, now stop. What's going on? Let's talk about the context a little bit. You heard Steve talk about it last week. Uh, Jesus has just done another miracle, feeding 4,000 people with just seven loaves of bread. It's the second feeding miracle that we've seen. He fed 5,000 with five loaves, now 4,000 with seven loaves. And the Pharisees go up and say, 
well, give us a sign that you're who you say you are right after this, right? Like, that's how Mark puts this together, to show that it's like, like, they don't make no sense. Like, they should not be asking for a sign right now. And Steve did a great job bringing that up. But that's the context, okay? That had just happened, and now the disciples and Jesus get in a boat, and they begin to go to the other side. And they have forgotten to take bread. It did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. Now, you should be thinking, big deal. <laughs> they just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves. Pretty sure one loaf with 12 dudes is going to be fine, right? Okay, but look what happens. And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, or the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. All right, connection, yeast. We only have one loaf. Jesus is obviously talking about lunch. And Jesus, aware of this, responds to them. And he responds to them with like a staccato of questions. It's one right after another, right? Listen to this. Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? And, and uh, that is actually emphatic. It's actually written like, hardened do you have a heart? In other words, Jesus is pointing out that like this idea of a hardened heart, you guys are dangerously close to it. Do you, do you have a hardened heart? That's what he's saying. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets did you pick up? And they all answer, 12, right? <laughs> what, what, what about what we just did when it was the 4,000? And I only had seven loaves, right? Do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? And that's how he ends that question. The irony, the irony that, that Mark sets up by, by uh, putting it this way just shows that they're, they're still, well, they're out to lunch. They're thinking about lunch and they're out to lunch. They don't understand what's going on. They still don't understand. And remember I said the first act of Mark is about who is Jesus? That's, that's what Mark is revealing. Who is Jesus? And they're about to transition to what it means. Okay? Who is Jesus? And Jesus is saying, do you still not understand? Do you still not understand? Now, um, he, here's the thing. Jesus has been revealing to them along this way that he is the Christ and he is the Son of God. And what that means is that he can provide. He can provide. In fact, he can provide lavishly, as Steve mentioned last week. And I just want to point out... Um, that doubting that God can provide for our daily needs causes problems. There are several dangers that arise when we become like the disciples, focused on uh, concerns for material well-being, okay? Now, um, I understand material well-being is important. I'm not telling you not to, uh, um, to care about those things, right? But when, when Jesus has demonstrated over and over again that he has the power to provide in amazing ways, and they're still acting this way, there's a problem, okay? So uh, the, first, the first danger uh, that I think about is that we begin to doubt the power of Jesus to provide enough. And we begin to be tempted to look to other sources, sources outside of God to provide for us. 
to care for us. Because you're doubting that either he has the ability to provide for you or that he doesn't care. So that's number one. We begin to doubt the power of Jesus to provide. Number two, we begin to vent anxiety by quarreling with others. And that undermines the biblical community that we're all supposed to be living in. Unity between brother and sister. Because we're so focused on uh, what's right in front of our face, that one loaf, and that that might not be enough. We don't see the bigger picture about who Jesus is and what he's doing in our lives. And we begin to doubt that he can provide for us. So we quarrel and we bicker. And that begins to fracture our community. Uh, The third thing that I thought um, is that the never-ending, let me see if I can say this right, the never-ending pursuit for daily bread distracts us from obeying God's will. When you're so wrapped up about the, the, the daily bread that you, that you need to get, you forget about the fact that the bread is his body. You forget about the fact that uh, there is something bigger in the life of a believer that you are supposed to be living into. Now, that doesn't mean that you're supposed to go hungry, right? What it means is that you're supposed to trust God to fill that hunger. So these these are three dangers, but it's not the main emphasis that that I want to point out here. What I want you to realize is that uh, they're missing the point. They're missing the point. Jesus says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, and they think, ah, lunchtime, bread, we only have one loaf. And I think what Mark is doing with some of this language is he's drawing attention to the fact that uh, the one loaf that they're thinking about is not the bread that's in the boat with them. They're distracted and they are missing the point. In fact, the word for bread, artos, here, the next time it shows up in the Gospel of Mark is when Jesus tells them, take this bread. It is my body. Right before he's betrayed, the institution of the Lord's Supper, right before he's betrayed, is the next time you see this conversation of bread. When Jesus tells them it's his body. I just think that's amazing. Okay. The main thing, though, right here is the yeast of the Pharisees. What is the yeast of the Pharisees? What is Jesus talking about? He says, beware, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. So that's really important for us to understand. What is he talking about? Well, in general, when you read about yeast or leaven within the Bible, there's a negative connotation to it. It often is associated with uh, evil human inclination, sin, right? Uh, uh, Parallel passages to this actually describe the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Um, Jesus actually uses it, though, in a positive light in Matthew 13 when he describes that the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took and hid three pecks of yeast and then it permeated and grew through an entire lump of dough. So it's not exclusively used in a negative connotation, but by and large, a lot of time it is. And I think from the context, you can see it, right? He's saying, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. That's not a good thing. So it's definitely a bad thing. 
And it's used in this idea of evil, sinfulness, hypocrisy, moving away from God. And I love the, the way one, one writer put it. In, in light of everything that has happened in Mark and the context of what is here, the yeast refers to a recalcitrant denial of truth and a hardened unbelief in Jesus, which is reflected in the Pharisees' response to him throughout the Gospel of Mark up until this point. It's a recalcitrant denial of truth and a hardened unbelief in Jesus. And Jesus knows that just a little bit of that yeast can begin to spread. Even in his disciples. So he tells them, watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. And right on cue, they demonstrate that they don't get it yet. That they still need to grow as disciples. It's really interesting. I'm glad when Jesus tries to speak to us in the Bible, we always understand it, like right away, right? Right? No? Just me? I understand it right away? No, just kidding. I, I do not, which is why sometimes it takes me forever to work on my sermon because I go, oh, man, what does that mean? Um, there, is, there is an aspect in which the teaching of the Pharisees and the way they live their lives in hypocrisy can permeate a community, spreading unbelief in who Jesus is. We need to watch out for that. We need to watch out in our own lives, but also in the way that our community talks to each other, in the way that we reflect upon our own faith. Is it possible for one of us to have an influence in our lives that begins to spread unbelief? Not just within ourselves, but within our community. Yeah. Yes, it's possible. In fact, um, the interesting thing about this is that we, we kind of see that it's, it's taken off. Let me explain. People can be negative influences for our faith, can't they? Preachers could be negative influences for our faith especially if they're not preaching true things. Uh, social media can be a negative influence for your faith. You, you become so addicted to it that you, you can't wait to check it in the morning, to see all the, the fake lives that people put online that you're addicted to, that you need to look at, and then before you know it, you got to go to work or you got to take care of the kids. You never spend any time with God. You never reflected upon who God is, or what he's doing in your life. You never took the time. Because you were looking at social media. And maybe you can say, yeah, but I mean, I, I look at Bible verses on my social media from different preachers that go out there. Well, what happens when you begin to replace your biblical community and your own uh, time with God with just whatever somebody says online? That also is negative to your faith. There are a lot of things that can influence us, small things that can influence us in major ways, moving us towards unbelief that we need to watch out for. Um, let me give you some proof of this. Ligonier Ministries is a, is a um, well, it's a ministry. I just said that. Uh, but uh, they do, they do an, uh, a biannual survey 
of uh, kind of the state of Christianity within the country, okay? And they, they, uh, they survey, you know, people who say they're Christian and people who say they're non-Christian, okay? Uh, one of the terms that you'll hear me say is an evangelical. And the way that they look at this is an evangelical is someone that says they're a Christian, claims to hold to orthodox teaching, and, like, goes to church, you know? Like, seems to be in, invested in the life of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, okay? That, that's all this term means. I want you to hear this. Last year, this was just last year, they found that 53%, 53% of all people in America don't think the Bible is true. It's half. It's up 41% from when they started uh, this survey just in 2014. It's up 41%. What about evangelicals? What about people that are, you know, say they're Bible-believing Christians who are walking with Jesus in biblical community, doing all the things that we encourage you to do here? 26% of people who claim to be evangelical don't think the Bible's true. One-fourth. For every four of you, one of you doesn't think the Bible is true. I mean, I hope that's not the case here. Every pastor hopes that's not his church. But, but that's scary, isn't it? Talk about a small influence that can permeate and spread unbelief, not just within yourself, but within an entire community. We need to watch out for those things. A couple more things. 56% uh, of evangelicals, of Christians surveyed in this, doesn't think that Jesus is the only way to God. 56% of Christians think that there are multiple ways to God, that it's not only through Jesus. Despite the fact that Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not except through, like, me, or, like, if you do this, or if you do this, or, right? It's only through Jesus. It is only through his work on the cross that we can come to God. And yet, 56% of people, as of last year, who call themselves Christians, don't believe that. 73% of Christians believe that Jesus was created by God created by God. Not eternal, not always with God, as God, but created by God. 43% of Christians believe that Jesus is not God. He's just a, he was a good man, a good teacher. These are, by the way, these are all heretical beliefs that were put down like thousands of years ago. Thousands of years ago, these were all put down as heretical and wrong and outside of uh, the bounds of Christianity. In other words, if you believe these things, you're not Christian. Not in the way that the scriptures call you to be. This is the last one. 66% of people in America believe that people are good by nature and that humans are not sinful by nature. 57% of Christians believe that. It's not true. The heart is deceitful above all things, right? That we are, we are sinful beings by nature, 
And we, we need an act of God to begin to change our hearts and begin to live in a way that reflects the righteousness of God through a spirit-empowered living. You can't do it on your own. If you could do it on your own, you would, but you can't. This is just last year, this survey. Why am I bringing this up? Because there's a lot of things that can influence us in major ways that negatively impact our faith, that move us further from Jesus instead of closer to Jesus, or just make you stay put. And as I'm going to talk about in a little bit, if you just stay put and you stop growing as a believer, you're actually moving further from Jesus. And we're going to talk about that. Okay, let's read the next passage. Um, so he's asking them these questions. And you don't get a response. You don't get a response from them. And then Mark moves into the story, uh, picking it up in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he uh, brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything yet? Isn't that interesting? Jesus just asks the disciples, having eyes, can you not see? And then Mark moves into this story about a blind man, and he asks the blind man, do you see anything yet? And he looked up and he said, I see men. For I see them like trees walking around. Hmm. You see men, but you see them like trees. That's interesting. Okay? Uh, and then again, he laid his hands on his eyes. And he looked intently and was restored, and began to see everything clearly. Oh, that's interesting. And then he sent him to his home and said, do not even enter the village. Now, I don't know about you, but after seeing what Jesus has done throughout the Gospel of Mark, and, and knowing what we've read in the Bible uh, through our whole lives, I'm pretty sure Jesus could have healed this guy like one time, you know? Pretty sure he has the power to do that. So it just it begs the question, why this, why this multiple stage of healing where he begins to see, but he can't quite discern exactly what things are, and then he's healed again later? What's really interesting, there's another, there's another blindness healing that occurs in Mark, and it's much later. In fact, it's basically at the end of this, sec, this the second act that's getting ready to start. Okay? And that's an instantaneous healing instantaneous healing of sight. I think what Mark is doing here is he's, he's saying, look, spiritual sight may come gradually and with difficulty. And, and, and Jesus does this in front of his disciples, and I think he shows the, a paradigm of what the disciples are going through. They are beginning to see things. But people don't look like people exactly. Do you get what I'm saying? So uh, the idea is like this. Um, I sometimes like to watch HGTV, like home renovation shows. My wife really likes to watch them. I sometimes like to watch them, okay? Uh, but I am the person that whenever they're looking at the mess of a house and they're talking about all these amazing things that it's going to look like, I'm the person that's like, with that house? Like, I, I don't see it. I don't have that ability to look at a building and see these amazing things. I just don't. But some people do, and I'm really glad they exist, because then they all of a sudden do all these amazing things, and within 25 minutes, 
They take a wreck of a home and then they put those images side by side and I go, oh, I can see the glory of God clearly in that home, right? It's amazing, but I couldn't see it in the beginning. And then they start working on it. You begin to see little changes, right? That's what's happening with the disciples. Because you're about to see in the next section that we're going to read an amazing declaration by the disciples. It's as if you can throw your hands up and you can say, hallelujah, they got it. But next week, you're going to learn that, nope, they're still seeing trees and they, they need some time for their sight to clear up. Now, why is that important uh, for us? Well, I... It's important for us because we need to learn to give ourselves some patience in understanding these things. And even more importantly than giving ourselves patience, I hope, I hope you never think you made it and you've got it all figured out and you know everything about God and you know everything about what's coming and you know everything about how Jesus wants you to live your life. If you do, oh, will you come talk to me, please? Because I would love to learn. But I think the truth is, being a disciple, somebody that's on the way with Jesus, means growing. It means growing. It means learning. Not just learning about who Jesus is, but about what it means for who he is. What that means for you personally, for your own life. What does it mean to walk with Jesus personally in your life? I hope you grow from a reflection of your own sin. You, you begin to see the ways in which you are straying from Jesus. Even though maybe someone on YouTube tells you you're not. I, I, I pray that we are a community of believers that grows in Christ. That grows in Christ. Spiritual sight may come gradually and with difficulty. Um, one of the other things I, I want to point out here is that sanctification is an act of the Holy Spirit within us. It's something that God does within us. But we have a responsibility to participate in that. We can grieve the Spirit We can, we can choose not to participate in becoming more and more Christ-like. We can choose to stay put. You know, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Nah, I just want to stay right there. I don't want to learn anything more about what it means to love God more. I don't want to learn anything more about what it means to love people more. I don't want to learn anything more about what it means to live in biblical community, to be uh, open about things that I'm struggling with so that people can, uh, can speak truth to me. I'm going to be a lone ranger, and I'm just, just my Bible and me. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be involved. I, I, don't need to, I don't need to serve. I believe in Jesus, me and the big guy, we're good, and, and, I'm, and I'm planting my flag, and I'm staying put. That is a yeast that will begin to grow in you. 
It will begin to spread unbelief. And it will begin to harden your heart. Always be of the attitude that there is more to learn. That there is more to grow into. Okay, we're going to go to our next section. What is the response of the disciples after being asked all these questions and then seeing this healing? What happens? Well, it says, uh, verse 27, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is way up north, way up north in Israel. In fact, it is pretty close to the farthest place that you can get from Jerusalem and still be in Israel. Okay, they're on their way to Caesarea Philippi. And he questions his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? And they answer him with stuff that we've already heard in Mark, right? They they told him, saying, John the Baptist, or uh, others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets, right? It's kind of like that teaching that I was talking about earlier. Jesus was a good, good guy. I mean, he's not God, but he was a good guy. Or maybe he was a prophet. Hmm. That's what other people are saying. But look at what Jesus says. Verse 29. He continued questioning them. Who do you say that I am? And I submit to you, there's no more important question than that question for us. Who do you say Jesus is? Not who do your friends say. Not who do your parents say. Not what I say. Not what Joe or Steve or... Who, who do you say Jesus is? That's a very important question. And Peter answers and says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. The parallel passages also have like, you are the Son of God. You are the Son of God. You are the Christ. And he wanted them to tell no one about him. Now why? Because uh, there were things that Jesus had to do. And Steve uh, pointed out last week that what kind of Messiah were they expecting? They were expecting a Messiah that was going to take over, right? Uh, Separate separate them from Rome, be a military conqueror. Well, the people, including the disciples, have a lot to learn about what being the Messiah actually means. And that's what we're going to end up moving into starting next week. But look at what he says. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days would rise again. That's what it means to be the Messiah. That's what it means that Jesus is the Christ. We have the rest of our lives to understand what it means to follow Jesus in the patterns that he set in his life by sacrificing himself for others, loving other people, doing things not the way that you would think. Every every time we read something about Jesus, he's doing something that we're like, man, I never would have thought about doing that. That's amazing. It means something for us to recognize the pattern of Jesus, and grow into that. Now, um, with a little bit of time that we have left, um, I I, I just want to share this idea between belief and trust. 
Belief and trust are, are interrelated. In fact, uh, many theologians will point to the fact that when it talks about faith or belief, that uh, belief and trust are two parts of the same coin that make up this idea of faith. This is where uh, James uh, kind of comes in with his argument of, uh, you know, faith without works is dead. In other words, if you say you have faith, but there's, there's no evidence of that faith in the way that you're living, is it true? Is it true faith? Belief and trust are, 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 are interchanged. Let me explain a little bit about what I mean. Now, uh, there's chairs, okay? I believe that this chair can hold me up if I sit on it. I believe that, right? But that doesn't mean I'm sitting on it. Once you sit on the chair, then you're demonstrating that trust in that belief. Like, y'all are sitting on chairs. I don't have somebody, like, like kind of almost sitting, but they're standing because they don't quite trust the chair. Do you understand what I'm saying? That, that, that belief and trust are tied together. Even though they're not the same, uh, they're tied together. This is, this is really important because what we're going to see the disciples move toward is not just a declaration that Jesus is the Christ, but, oh, I, I actually need to trust Jesus for my daily life. I have to develop a dependency in what he says, not what I think. There's, there's a progress of trust that happens in the disciples, and there's a progress of trust that happens within you and I as we grow more and more into the image of Christ. And that's what I hope we're moving towards. Um, you know, Romans 12, 2 uh, says this. It says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove that the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And, and, and the idea that, uh, that we're not to be conformed into the world, that word uses this idea that, like, it's going to happen. You're going to be conformed. The, 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 the molding and the pressing of the world is such that you will not avoid it unless you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind. So it... If you get to a point in your life where you're like, it's time for me to be stagnant, or maybe you don't even know that you've been stagnant, you are going to be pressed in by the world. You've stopped transforming by the renewing of your mind. And you'll begin to slip away from Jesus, and you'll begin to look more like the world. Uh, D.A. Carson, uh, who's a, you know, a really famous theologian, prolific author, if if you end up trying to do anything in an academic circle regarding Christianity, you will read something by D.A. Carson. I guarantee it. But he, he said this. He said, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, and obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. 
we slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. There is a strong danger that we need to avoid. We all need to avoid the yeast of the Pharisees. We all need to avoid influences that take us further from Jesus instead of closer to him. We need to to understand what those influences are and how they're impacting us and how they can spread through our community. You need to have an awareness of that. I need to have an awareness of that. And one of those influences is choosing to be satisfied with where you are. To stop, uh, and I don't mean that in in terms of uh, the satisfaction of God with where he has you. What I mean is like, I'm good with God and I no longer need to grow in holiness. That that is an unhealthy thought. And we see uh, just in, in this healing that spiritual sight may take time. And it may prove difficult. And we're going to see it throughout the disciples. We've already seen it up until this point. Finally, we see Peter saying, you are the Christ. But we're about to see in the second act, they still don't understand what that means. And they're still growing. You and I need to continue to grow. We do that through the reading of his word. We do that through prayer. We do that through being in biblical community. From having uh, trusted people in our lives that will speak the truth to us that we can uh, lean on for support. All of these things can help us. But first, you have to have an awareness of the fact that there are influences that will take you away from Jesus. And you have to think about that. You have to watch out for that, as Jesus tells his disciples. Um, I want to leave you with this with this image that was thought of by a theologian many years ago. It demonstrates this idea of of growth in faith, of of growth towards trusting in Christ, because we continue to grow in trust. Um, There's a a tightrope walker that was going to walk across Niagara Falls. And so, you know, the, the, the message went out and media caught wind of it and a whole, a whole lot of people showed up, right? And he goes out, walks across, walks back. You know, there's applause. It's exciting. And then he goes, I, I think I can do this with a, with a wheelbarrow. Do you guys think I can do this with a wheelbarrow? And everybody's like, yeah, this is exciting. Woo, we believe you can do it with a wheelbarrow. He takes that wheelbarrow, goes across with a wheelbarrow, comes back. I don't know how you would turn around, but hey, <laughs> somebody else's illusion, not mine. All right. And he, and he comes back, right? Oh, the crowd's going nuts. I believe I can do this with a wheelbarrow with a whole bunch of bricks in it. Do you guys believe I can do that? Yeah, we believe you can do that. Woo, yeah, it's exciting. Loads up bricks, goes out and does it, right? Just nimble as can be. And then he goes, I believe I can do this with a person in the wheelbarrow. Do you believe I can do that? Yeah, we believe it. All right, cool. Who's, who's coming? <laughs> who's getting in the wheelbarrow? It's time to go. There's a difference between believing somebody can do something and trusting it. Who do you say Jesus is? Do you believe he's the son of God? Do you believe that he is the Messiah? Do you believe that he came and died for your sins and rose again 
so that you may have eternal life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he loves you? That he will provide for you? Whether you got one loaf of bread or seven. Another question. Do you trust those things? Do you trust those things? I hope that we are a community that continues to grow in that trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we recognize that, that we are utterly dependent upon you. We depend upon you for the, for the air in our lungs. We depend upon you for the water which quenches our thirst. We depend upon you for the, the food that satisfi- satisfies our hunger. Oh God, will you show us that that is only the beginning of what it means to depend upon you? That there is so much more to being a follower of your son Jesus and that you want to bring us along the way a little bit more every day. God, will you do that for us today? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.